1: We are seeing the emergence now of bots that are built with more machine learning so they can learn from their environment and change the way that they speak so that now rather than the bots just being clunky and being used to amplify certain kinds of content, the bots are actually engaging in conversation.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the CyberWire's Hacking Humans Podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. Later in the show, Carol Terrier returns, and she's going to be speaking with Samuel C. Woolley from the University of Texas at Austin. They're going to be talking about disinformation campaigns. And we are back. Uh, Joe, why don't you start things off for us this week? You well, got I have a, little... a correction, Dave. Yeah. I yeah. was
0: listening to our last episode. Okay. I listened to all of our episodes, and not just because I love the sound of my own voice and yours, <laughs> but because I want to make sure I didn't say anything that makes me go, oh, that was stupid. Yeah. And last week I said something that makes me go, oh, that was stupid. So okay. <laughs> when I said last week we were talking about uploading things to Virus Total. And yeah. I said that VirusTotal didn't have signatures. That's not how VirusTotal works. VirusTotal is actually a very good site. You upload a file to VirusTotal, and it processes that through a bunch of different engines. So the question was, what does it Wait, mean? When you
2: say engines, what do you mean?
0: Virus, um, virus scanning engines through like 50 of them. Okay. So, I mean, McAfee's on there, Symantec's on there, but a bunch of virus scanners you've never heard of are also on there as well. Okay. And having a low VirusTotal score means that very few of those virus scanners detected anything as as malicious. I see. So there are actual legitimate software that will come up as malicious by one or two of these scanners sometimes. I've okay. had that happen before. Uh, huh. So when we were talking about the malicious JavaScript that if you uploaded it, it had a low hit rate. That could easily be interpreted
2: as being okay. I see. All right. So just a, a little clarification. A little clarification
0: there. from what I said last week. Yeah. Yes.
2: All right. Very good. Uh, well, my story this week. Uh, actually, this one hits a little close to home for you, I suppose. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there's, uh, everyone, have, uh, understandably, is talking about uh, the coronavirus, the yep. COVID-19. I heard someone uh, comment on Twitter the other day that the great thing about COVID-19 is that it's made every podcast a COVID-19 podcast. And uh, <laughs> I suppose, thanks to this story, we're no exception to that. So this was uh, an, it's actually sent in by a listener. And this was a message that was being sent around by their workplace IT department. And it reads like this. It says, the Department of Health and Human Services released an alert ...regarding a malicious website pretending to be a live map for coronavirus COVID-19 global cases by Johns Hopkins University. Hmm. It's circulating on the internet waiting for unwitting internet users to visit the website. Visiting the website infects the computer with an information-stealing program which can exfiltrate a variety of sensitive information. Furthermore, anyone searching the internet for a coronavirus map could unwittingly navigate to this malicious website. Cyber actors may be sending emails with malicious attachments or links to fraudulent websites to trick victims into revealing sensitive information or donating to fraudulent charities or causes. Exercise caution in handling any email with a COVID-19 related subject line, attachment or hyperlink and be wary of social media pleas, texts or calls related to COVID-19. So this is a good warning here. I think uh, worth mentioning that I think the reason that Hopkins, which, of course, is uh, your place of employment. Right. The reason that they would become a target here is that Hopkins has this amazing utility, this, this sort of global heat map, one of the best there is.
0: Right. Yeah, Dave, it's coronavirus.jhu.edu.
2: Yeah. And it is a heat map and it's it's actually a pretty interesting
0: tool. I advise everybody to take a look at it, but type in the URL coronavirus.jhu.edu.
2: Yeah. Don't trust a search engine necessarily. Right. Although it did come up as the first hit on Google. So that's okay. how I found it.
0: But, you know, make sure you're going to jhu.edu just as the case with just about everything. This email coming around, the URL may even look like it says coronavirus.jhu.edu, but behind the scenes, it may be Bob's malicious bobsmaliciouswebsite.com or something. Right.
2: Yeah. So I think the bigger message here, though, is as we're sort of on the leading edge of, of dealing with this here in the U.S., as we record this, of course, things are changing very quickly. Yes. But be extra vigilant, because there is no question that the bad guys are going to be taking advantage of this, taking advantage of all of our emotions and our possibly our fears and right. our anxieties. Oh,
0: definitely our fears and our anxieties. That's yeah. one of the things we're going to capitalize on.
2: Yep. Just be extra vigilant. Look twice. All those things we uh, warn you about, like Joe just said, make sure that you type in that URL. Don't click the links. Think twice. Ask a friend before you respond to, right. to donate or give some money, something like that. Just slow down. Check it out. Make sure that it's legit or, uh, you know, donate to the, the, the legitimate causes that we all know are helping with these sorts of things, right. things the, like the, the Red Cross. Right, the legitimate cause of
0: your choice that you normally give to. Right. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So thanks to our listener for sending that in. That is my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us?
0: My story, Dave, comes out of Delaware here in the U.S. It is about an 89-year-old woman who lost $9,500 to scammers. Mm. They called her and said, your grandson has been arrested for causing a car accident. Right. And they had her grandson's correct name. They knew who she was. Yeah. And they knew that she was related to this person. And they said, you're going to have to mail us $1,500 in bail money. And and we've talked about these scams before, right? Yeah. The, the woman actually puts $1,500 in an envelope and mails it to an address in Connecticut. Hmm. And what happens? They call her back and they say... The other driver has passed away. Now you have to send us $10,000 in funeral expenses, right? So she rounds up $8,000, and a guy shows up at her house to collect the money. Really? Yeah. Shows up at her house, and she gives him the eight grand. At this point, the woman calls her family and says, what's going on with him? Is he okay? And they're like, yeah, he's fine. He's right here. You know, none of this has happened. This is a scam. Hmm. Now she's mad. (laughs)
2: <laughs> right? She's been scammed. Right. She know everybody knows she's been scammed, but I could just picture the movie trailer, you know. Right. Don't, don't mess with grandma. <laughs> <Right. She's, laughs> with these allergies, a, you have a great voice. She's a grandma on she's on a mission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So she calls
0: the cops. Okay. Right? And the cops say they're going to call you back. And when they call you back, they're going to try to get more money out of you. Let's see if we can get them. Oh, excellent. Right? Sure enough, they call her back and they say, we need another $10,000. And the excuse this time is, for the sake of your grandson, right? What does that even mean? I don't know what that means. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Okay. But this time, this is terrifying to me. This time, the guy says, we're going to send a couple of guys over. They're going to need to come into your house to count the money. Really? Okay. Now, if this woman hadn't called the cops, where would this have gone?
2: Yeah. Right.
0: This is what Penn Gillette was talking about a couple of weeks ago. These yeah. guys, are, these guys are thugs and they're violent and they're going to do whatever they can they need to do to get the money.
2: Well, I, you know, it's funny. I was thinking the same thing. But what I was thinking about of what Penn said was about how these folks have to take that risk to to meet someone in person. Right. He's putting them at risk. And, and I'm not sure how the story's going to end. But it sounds like that risk plays out. Right. It does. Because. She
0: goes, "Okay, fine. You got, you send a couple guys here and I'll have the money ready for you." Yeah. And the guys show up and when they show up, the cops are there. And the cops arrest two guys and charge them each with two felonies. Nice. Right? Nice. Right. Which is which is great. Yeah. I'm very happy that this ended this way. Now she's still out the 15 or $9,500. Because okay. she did give somebody $1,500 via the mail, and then the first guy that showed up, who may have been one of the guys that was arrested, I don't know. Who knows? He doesn't have that $8,000 anymore. Yeah, that's they, gone.
2: well, they might have just been money mules or right. you know, hire these thugs to come just pick up the money and take a, they, you know. They could very well have been money mules. In fact,
0: yeah. I'll bet that's exactly what they are. Hmm. So a little bit of a happy ending. And this story has a lot of the common things that we see. First off, these people that perpetrate these scams have no morals or lows to which they will not stoop. Yeah. You know, they they went after this 89-year-old woman, they made her feel like her grandson was in trouble, and the second thing that stands out about the story is something we always say, once they hook you, they're going to try to get as much money out of you as they can,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? Because they've laid that groundwork and they've, they've got a live one. They're going to exploit that resource as much as they can. And this is particularly true in romance scams and extortion scams as well. Mm. And they will exploit that resource until the person either runs out of money or wises up fortunately, this, this lady wised up after what is a relatively small amount of money considering some of the scams we've seen. But yeah. I, it's, a, it's a little bit bigger than the average for when elderly people are scammed out of money. I think the average was like $6,800. Mm. So this is an above-average scam.
2: Right. Well, and, and uh, as we often say, it was her talking to her family, right. telling someone else. Yeah, it and that's, that's what slowed it down. That's the last thing
0: I wanted to say. You know, when you when you get these kind of calls, you need to verify this first. You know, if this woman had made the call to her child that had the grandson, to that family, before she sent the $1,500, she would have known it was a scam immediately. Right. I don't know that that would have resulted in them catching the crooks, because this looks like the crooks do something that is remote first, right? Like, mm-hmm. if I let's see if I can get this lady to send me $1,500 to an address, and if I can then I'll take the risk of sending somebody to her house. Right. But if I can't, then I'll just move on to the next person. Yeah. They might not have been caught, but she wouldn't have been injured the way she was
2: financially. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So a twist on uh, a story that we've we've talked about before because with this sort of funeral type thing, this accident scam, I guess we right. could call it. Yeah, we get, we, we, we we've heard problem. of that one before, but this is the first time I think we've talked about someone turning the tables on Right. Yeah it's, yeah. it's a great story, I think. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah, happy That's ending. why I went with it this week, Dave. Yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's a good story. Well, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from a user on Reddit. It's under the category of "been going back and forth with these uh, a-holes for a few weeks now." More pictures in the comments. So this is uh, the initial uh, attempt to hook somebody with a, a sad story here. The woman's name is Muriel Falgier, I suppose. And Joe, it sounds like she is French. Yes. So as we know, I am a master of dialects. So here we go. All right. Hello. Please, I know this
3: post sounds strange and probably amazing, but that's the reality. My name is Muriel Forger. born in August 1956 in Toulouse, France. I was a consultant in Switzerland, where I had to serve for 19 years. I took the liberty of contacting you, because I wanted you to do something very important. He seems a little suspicious, even if you don't know me. In fact... I have terminal esophageal cancer. My doctor just informed me that my days are numbered because of my condition. I have had this disease for over four years. I almost sold my business, and some of the money will go to various associations, orphans and homeless care centers, because my spiritual father advised me to honor the memory of my husband and child. I almost sold my business and some of the money will go to various associations, orphans and homeless care centers because my spiritual father advised me to honor the memory of my husband and child. I do not know your area of practice, but I would like to help others in your country. I am currently in my hospital bed. I have a sum of 450,000 euros in my personal account. I do not know your area of practice, but I would like to help others in your country. I would like to ask you if you accept that I give you this money that will help you in your projects and also follow my project to build an orphanage that I have in progress. May God's peace and mercy be with you. Honestly,
0: Muriel Fougier. You know, I wasn't believing it until she said, honestly,
2: Muriel. (laughs) Well, who would write that without being sincere?
0: (laughs) Right. There's a lot of
2: repeated text in this. this, There is. uh, That's interesting. I wonder why.
0: I I don't know. It sounds like it might be a copy and paste issue, Mm -hmm. but... This is obviously a scam. It's an advance fee scam.
2: Yep. You know, we're
0: we're going to give you all this money, but first got to pay to get it.
2: Pulling on the heartstrings. Yeah. Someone's got terminal cancer.
0: Oh, that is terrible.
2: Yeah. They want to build an orphanage, so. Right.
0: They, they want get, it to go to their various associations.
2: Yeah. Good. Which reminds good me causes.
0: of Adam Sandler's
2: uh, Cajun Man. <laughs> yeah. Humiliation. <laughs> Desperation. Yeah. Yeah, so pretty standard stuff here. Yeah, but but I thought the French accent would be nice, too. (laughs) Well, I I aim to please. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, Carol Terrio returns. She is speaking with Samuel C. Woolley. He's from the University of Texas at Austin, and they're going to be chatting about disinformation campaigns. And we are back. Uh, Joe, always great to have Carol Terrio back on our show. This week, she chats with Samuel C. Woolley. He's from the University of Texas at Austin. And they're going to be talking about disinformation campaigns. Here's Carol.
4: So let me introduce you guys to Samuel Woolley, an assistant professor at the University of Texas and project director at the Center for Media Engagement for Propaganda Research. Now, this past January, Sam's book, The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth, was published. And in it, he explores the ways in which new tech, like deepfakes can manipulate public opinion. And I was wondering, should we really be concerned about deep fakes? So I thought I'd ask an expert like Sam. Thanks for coming on the show, Sam. Thanks for having me. This must have been a fascinating book to research. And I bet you learned so much writing it. How long did it take you?
1: Oh, it took me the better part of a year. I spent time writing each morning. Obviously, I missed lots of mornings for various reasons. (laughs) Right. It was a lot of fun to write given the topic area. You know, sometimes it's a bit of a challenge, but it was the culmination of six years worth of research at the University of Washington and then at Oxford, and i'm happy with how it turned out it really you know like i spent a lot of time looking at what have we seen in the past in terms of computational propaganda or the use of automation and algorithms to manipulate public opinion online to think about what might be coming next and how we can work to stop it
4: yeah so maybe first we could start talking about what a deep fake is so maybe you can explain that to us
1: sure so a deep fake is a Video that's created artificially to make it look as if someone is saying or doing something that they never said. Most of them have actually been created by arts collectives or comedians or other groups. There's so many images of everyone online now mashed together so that you have all of the different angles and shapes of the mouth, given that there's so many images. You can then overlay audio and make it look like someone's saying something they didn't do. I'm actually more concerned at this stage right now in 2020 with cheap fakes, which are just... Basically edited, like slowed down or mashed together videos that are created on, say, iMovie rather than using sophisticated AI. We've seen a lot of cheap fakes actually go viral and nearly anyone can create them. So examples of that would be the the slowed down Pelosi video.
4: Yeah. And that is almost equally as disruptive, isn't it? Because you can look at those videos and think, oh, wow, and make an opinion about a person and they'd be completely misguided.
1: That's right. Yeah. And and I think it's really easy on social media to make snap judgments. The way that social media is constructed, it it allows you just to share something very, very quickly. And we all know that this has been an issue in the past for a variety of different reasons. I'm sure that we've all personally experienced sharing something and, been, and then having been like, well, maybe I shouldn't share <laughs> that. Um, yeah. Well, with video, and especially with cheap fakes, it, it makes it very easy to make a snap judgment and then just to share it. Deep fakes are, are more sophisticated than they are equally easy to share once they're out in the wild. They're just much more resource intensive to create.
4: Right. So we're right now in the middle, in the midst of a U.S. election cycle. So are you thinking we're going to see deep fakes ramp up? We're going to see the use of them more trying to just, you know, to try to change people's opinions or misguide them?
1: I anticipate that we'll continue to see more and more cheap fakes, so selectively edited Mm -hmm. videos. Since there's so much video content out of both the Democratic frontrunners and also Donald Trump, I expect that we'll see a lot of just basic videos that are, edited or even not edited, just to show the person doing or saying something that they've done, but in a selective context.
4: And thank you for correcting me on that. So it's the word, the word du jour is cheap fakes. Now, the thing is, people do create memes or satirical videos, which effectively may manipulate an original content to be funny or and, and it's all about the, I guess, the intention or how it's received. How do we tell the difference between these two things?
1: Right. So there's got to be a space for satire and parody. I think that satire and parody are a key part of democratic conversation and of, you know, in the United States, what we consider to be the First Amendment to the right to free speech. I think that the thing that matters most is intent and transparency.
4: And that's the problem, I guess, there is that intent is hard to regulate.
1: Yeah, intent is hard to regulate. But, you know, when it comes to parody and satire, I don't know if we should be regulating things as much. Mm-hmm. And so if someone spreads, for instance, a video that is meant to be parody or satire but never says who did it, I think it makes it a little bit more toxic and it gives it the potential for more harm. And that's very much the case with a lot of the computational propaganda we see. A lot of it is actually anonymous and it's meant to spread misinformation, or which is accidentally spread information, So, which is often happens after disinformation, which is purposefully spread false information.
4: And do you feel that this onslaught of cheap fakes is going to have the impact of eroding trust between not just individuals and corporations or organizations, but between individuals?
1: Yeah, I think that we've already been seeing that. I think that cheap fakes, as well as deep fakes, are just sort of the next thing in a line of technologies. And these things have led, uh, in in some ways, shapes and forms, to more polarization and to a lack of, of trust amongst particular communities. You need to look no further than, for instance, the Brexit campaign in 2016 or the U.S. election in 2016 to see the ways in which powerful political entities like the Russian government made use of manipulative content. It's not necessarily that they're pitting Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. context against each other or labor and conservatives against each other in the U.K. context, but that they're pitting people within their own groups against each other.
4: And how do you feel that that's changed in the last four years? We're now in 2020, we're ramping up for a US election.
1: Yeah, social bot is a bot that is an account that is used to automate someone's social media presence. Before when we first when I first started selling this stuff in twenty thirteen, the bots being used were very clunky. They were used to just automatically drive up likes or retweets or um, messages. Mm-hmm. They just they just massively amplified some content while trying to out shout or suppress other content. We saw a lot of this in the Syrian Civil War, we've seen it in Mexico. Right. Now bots are becoming the people who use bots are becoming more sophisticated. They are using them in a way that are unexpected and kind of surprising. So we are seeing the emergence now of bots that are built with more machine learning so they can learn from their environment and change the way that they speak. So that now rather than the bots just being clunky and being used to amplify certain kinds of content, the bots are actually engaging in conversation. There was a misperception in 2016 and even more recently that there was these armies of bots out there that were trying to like change people's opinion by having in-depth conversation with bots and, and often cyborg accounts that have some human help emerge.
4: Wow. And so, okay, this is the world that we live in now. What advice do you have for individuals like me who want to be able to detect these things and not be duped by them?
1: So the first step is there's a number of different tools out there. There's a tool called Botometer. If you're on Twitter, you can plug in any account and determine whether or not it's it's more or less automated, and Botometer has become something of an industry standard for a lot of people. It's, you can get access to the Botometer API and plug in, you know, a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand accounts and determine like whether or not there's fake activity going on. Obviously, that takes a bit more coding knowledge, and then a few other things. the The team at First Draft News is doing fantastic work to educate journalists and people in civil society and researchers about. How to spot and write about disinformation. And then also you know our own team at Texas, we've worked with nearly a hundred newsrooms to date. To help train journalists. And uh, we also have a number of different training modules and ethics-oriented documents on our site.
4: <laughs> well, at least we have a few things that we can do to try and keep ourselves safe from the more manipulative, miscreant, cheap fakes out there. Sam Woolley, author of The Reality Game, thank you so much for sharing your insight with us today. Thanks for having me.
2: This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. All right, lots of interesting stuff from Carol and her guest this week. And huh?
0: Sam, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say this again, Dave. I say it a lot. Don't get your political news from social media, okay? Social media is by no means a valid forum for political discussion. Don't even discuss politics on social media. It's not a productive conversation. All right. It is a waste of time and effort. This is all my opinion, but I have never once seen a civil political discourse on social media.
2: It does tend to tailspin quickly,
0: doesn't it? Almost immediately. (laughs) It's terrible. I love the term computational propaganda. Me too, That's a great term, and it's important to note the difference between misinformation and Disinformation being a deliberate and willful lie and misinformation being spreading information that's incorrect, but thinking you're spreading the truth. Oh,
2: I see. Right. Sure.
0: That's, sure. A, that's kind of an important distinction. Yeah, yeah. So I guess you could say that the impetus could be a disinformation campaign, but then it becomes people spreading misinformation, right? Uh, I see. Yep. Yep. Maybe. Cheap fakes are more viral right now than deep fakes because they're more believable because you're actually taking genuine footage of somebody and manipulating that footage just with readily available tools that everybody has access to. Right. right? And he talks about the Pelosi video. And I remember seeing that going viral and people really believing that Nancy Pelosi was having some kind of issue. And it turns out it was just somebody had slowed the video down to make her look like she was having some kind of cognitive issue. Right. And it wasn't genuine at all.
2: It reminds me of, um, if you've ever watched any reality show, there's this technique that they all use, and usually it's right before they go to commercial. Right. Where they'll say, um, who's going to go on to the next round? And then they'll cut to one person, cut to the next person, cut to one person, cut to the next person. And they're just cutting back and forth, building tension through these cuts. And it is... And it is all uh, built through the edit. It is not what happened in real time. They're just stretching out that time to make the tension unbearable. Right. And it's all in the edit.
0: It's amazing how effective this interference has been within the political parties. Like, for example, when Mitt Romney voted with the Democrats to impeach Trump. Right. I saw people who I know voted for Romney when he was up for president, calling him a traitor. And on the Democratic side, I have seen such vitriol from Democrats to other Democrats about either Biden or Sanders or Bloomberg or Warren just attacking each other. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. And this is one of the reasons I say that social media is not a valid forum for political discourse.
2: Well, and, and a lot of these bad actors, they're out there stirring the pot. They're revving people up. They're right. encouraging this sort of discourse and, and disinformation and this corrosiveness. Yeah, it'll be
0: interesting to see uh, in four years when, when the Republicans have their own primary without a clear front runner like like we do this year, what happens in the Republican Party? Because I'm going to bet that a very similar thing happens in the, with the Republican Party that is happening right now with the Democratic Party.
2: Yeah, well, hopefully we'll learn some lessons between then and now. But I have to say, uh, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We as a species tend to be very slow to learn these kind of <laughs> yes, lessons. We, lessons. Are, we
2: are a reactive species. And we love our sure. tribes. That's um, right. That's right.
0: The bottom meter is a pretty cool tool. This is from Indiana. Yeah, let me, just,
2: uh, to, let me just give our listeners a little insight here. Uh, when we were listening and uh, Samuel mentioned the Bado-Meter, we took a little break here recording yep. our show because Joe had a new toy. Right, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was like, ooh, what's my bottom meter sc- right. score? Right. And uh, this is on Twitter. At JT Kerrigan, I have a meter score of about 0. 0.2. Yeah, and uh, I so next I, I of course checked out Dave and he has a score of about 0.1. Right. So Dave is like 50% as likely to be a, a bot as I am.
2: I like to think of it as that I'm twice as good as you. Okay. <laughs> I like to think of it, I'm <laughs> twice as good as you. But
0: there are some interesting things in here. I, I look for a bot account that we know is a bot account. There's at femtech underscore, yep. which is a bot account that retweets female developers. Right. And that only has a bot score of 1.3. Yeah. And then I randomly picked a couple of my followers, and one has a bot score of 1 out of 5. Another one has a bot score of 2.8 out of 5. And then I picked this podcast promoter who follows me that I don't follow back. And he has a bot score of 4.7.
2: It's interesting. interesting.
0: I mean, I can read the URL out to you, but just go to Google and Google Botometer, B-O-T-O-M-E-T-E-R, and it will take you to a UI.edu webpage, and you can enter a Twitter handle, and it will tell you how likely it is that handle is run by a bot.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's
0: fun. The last thing that, that Sam talked about was he has some training courses for journalists. This is of critical importance. One of the biggest problems in journalism today is this churnalism phenomenon, where something gets run by one service and then everybody picks it up because they need to be talking about it to get the clicks.
2: Yeah, right. It just needs to get out there fast. There's right. no, no time to vet things.
0: It's better to be fast than it is to be accurate, it seems. I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I think it's, it's much better to be accurate than it is to be fast. Mm-hmm. And there are some organizations out there that do a very good job with their journalism, and then there are some that don't. You have to, as a responsible consumer of this media, take those things into account. You know, when you see somebody that has put something up, you you believe these people to be a reputable source of journalism, and it comes out that they've repeatedly put up stuff that is not vetted, not factually accurate. Maybe you stop consuming that media.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would regularly see back when I was on Facebook, I'd regularly see friends who would innocently post something that was from a parody site. Right. And it would be some ridiculous thing, usually some ridiculous thing that this site said a politician did or said or something. And these friends of mine who did not know it was. Satire, right? Posted it as if it were true, yeah. And I got to tell you, I that's one thing I don't miss about being off Facebook is having <laughs> to take the time to correct these folks, or you yeah, know, yeah, because you feel like it's your responsibility to correct these right, people, right. right? Yeah, just and, you, yeah. You want to you want to do your part? Yeah, I just unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I do. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I let it let it take its place. I think the parody and, and satire are very important aspects, especially in a free society. And sure. I love sites like The Onion and The Babylon Bee. I think they're they're funny.
2: All right. Well, uh, another uh, really great interview from Carol Terrio. Thanks so much, Carol, for bringing that to us. And thanks to Samuel Woolley from the University of Texas at Austin for being our guest this week. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Datatribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Fitner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.